first thing um, about this sermon that I had to research was, how do I say Philemon or Philemon? Um, Google apparently leans towards Philemon, but I think both are fine. Anything outside of those is kind of outside the bounds of orthodoxy. Probably kind of heresy, and church discipline will begin pretty soon if you go for one of those. Uh, if you want to find it in your Bible, uh, if you're in one of the church Bibles, it's on page 1000, which is pretty satisfying. Uh, it'll be after Titus in all Bibles, if you have it on your phone uh, or whatever. Uh, it's just a short book, um, just 25 verses, of Paul uh, writing to his friend Philemon uh, to appeal uh, for a former slave, Onesimus. Uh, if you have it up, we'll, uh, we'll read it all uh, and then go from there. It'll be on the screen uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. Paul a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I... Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord's. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Um, so Paul is writing this letter to Philemon, um, to Philemon's wife, Aphia, uh, and most likely their son, Archippus. 
Uh, Archippus is mentioned in Colossians. He is somebody uh, who has his own ministry in the Lord's. Uh, Paul writes this uh, from prison in Ephesus. Uh, He's there with Timothy. And Philemon is situated in Colossae. Uh, Onesimus, uh, that most of the letter uh, is a plea for, uh, had been a slave of Philemon. Uh, Onesimus had fled, uh, potentially and probably having stolen something from Philemon. He fled and found Paul. From Paul, Onesimus got converted to become a follower of Jesus. And now Paul is wanting to send him back to Philemon. But not to send him back as a slave, but as a dearly beloved brother. As we get into the letter, uh, verse 6 is a really key verse for giving an overview of what it is that this is all about. I'll read it again and and then we'll talk about it. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Uh, This verse is really difficult to translate, uh, not just because Greek is a difficult language, but even the the smartest boffins around find it really difficult. Um, There's a a couple of issues. The first is that phrase we have in the ESV here, that the sharing of your faith. Uh, The the Greek word koinonia is is elsewhere in this letter and in other letters translated as partnership. Uh, That probably helps us more. Uh, When we read sharing of our faith, we naturally uh, think about evangelism. Um, But what Paul is calling Philemon to here is far broader than that. It is his whole partnership, his participation, his contribution, his generosity um, to the community of faith. The other difficulty is the the end of the verse. Uh, We read, full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That every good thing is a little ambiguous, Uh, Some would say um, that that is the blessings that we have received in Christ. And some would say that every good thing is what we are meant to do for the sake of Christ. Uh, Both directions kind of have equal merit and are really helpful as we think on this. Uh, And the third thing from that verse, just want to highlight at the start, uh, is for the sake of Christ, um, different versions will translate the whole verse really differently. Uh, for the glory of Christ is probably the most helpful way uh, for us to think of it. And from this verse, we get three questions about the book of Philemon that help us to understand the whole thing. The first is why is Paul calling Philemon to do anything? What is the purpose of Philemon's life? The second is what is Paul calling Philemon to? And the third is how is any of that possible? This whole letter is, uh, the context of it is the application of a moment that changed the world forever. Uh, We can all look back across various moments in the world and think the world has never been the same since that thing. Uh, So in history class, uh, at school you learn about Franz Ferdinand uh, getting shot and World War I came and everything that changed from that. Many were reflecting last week on 9-11 and the effect that it has had on the world since. Or the birth of the internet, the world has never been or will never be the same since the birth of the internet. As Christians, the thing we want to say that changed the world most is the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And often when we, when we think of those things, uh, we go straight to kind of spiritual realities, helpful ones. But we neglect to think on and ponder on the very real physical change that the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection brings. This letter to Philemon is a really practical example of what difference that makes. That Jesus' death and resurrection really changes everything. It changes why Philemon is called to anything. It changes what he is called to, and it changes how he could possibly do it. So that first question, why is Paul talking to Philemon? Why is he calling him to action? And it's that phrase at the end of verse 6, for the sake of Christ or for the glory of Christ. For Philemon's whole life, the central thing in his whole life is to be the glory of Christ. Paul's prayer for him, the end goal of that prayer is that Philemon's faith would lead to the glory of Christ. The life of a Christian is a life that is not lived to serve oneself. It is a life lived to serve God. And so for somebody of Philemon's uh, status back in the day, uh, he was a pretty well-to-do person. The world would have told him that his life was about getting a bit more wealthy, getting a bit more power, and in those days, when you had those things, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted. You could bribe your way out of anything. No moral laws would really apply to you. And so the whole world would be telling Philemon, just do whatever you want. The world is really your oyster. But Paul completely flips that. Philemon's life is not to be lived for Philemon. Philemon's life is to be lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20 sums it up really well why this is the case. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul writes that he is crucified with Christ. That idea of living for oneself has been fully put to death. That in becoming a Christian, we say to the world and we say to God that we are not living for ourselves anymore. We are living solely for Jesus. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism kind of sums it up really beautifully as well. The question is, what is my only comfort in life and death? And the first part of the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. As Philemon came to believe in Jesus, as Onesimus came to believe in Jesus, as we as a church of God's people came to believe in Jesus, we said no to living for ourselves and yes to living solely for the glory of Jesus. This glory is due him. 
Any attempt by us to claim the glory for, for anything is really an attempt to steal it from God. He is the one who deserves it all. That's why in verse 4, Paul thanks God for Philemon's love and faith. These lo- this love and faith are due to God's goodness, not Philemon's. God takes his glory and any attempt to steal it so seriously. Um, these are going to come up on the screen. Feel free to turn there. Let's read the first eight verses of Isaiah 42. This answers that question of what is God, uh, how does God want to, to share, but the answer is to not share his glory. It's coming up on the screen. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In that passage, God speaks of his promised servant who will bring justice to the nations. He also speaks of his creating of the universe, of stretching out the heavens, and in the very next phrase, speaks of giving breath to all people. The contrast there is really significant because it is saying that God is glorified in that he made the very biggest things, the most wonderful things, and God is glorified that in the most common things as breathing, that it is he who is to receive the glory for that. For the most wild and wonderful things we can imagine and the most common things, The sole person who is due glory for these is God. And so I want to ask you, who gets the glory most often in your life? When that promotion comes or when those problems go away or when family seems to be going wonderful or when you wake up in the morning and you do your daily things, when you work out, when you eat, when you breathe. Who is that really all down to? By your words and by your life, whose name is shouted loudest? Who gets the glory? The second question we have about Philemon is what is Paul calling him to do? Uh, And it's written most helpfully in verse 16. It's to welcome Onesimus back no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. 
especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What Paul is asking of Philemon is completely countercultural. It would have been the expected norm that in such a, such a case as this, Philemon uh, would severely punish Onesimus, probably to the point of death. And Paul calls him to welcome Philemon back as an equal. At this point, it's, um, the question of slavery here is kind of staring us in the face. It's really hard to look through Philemon and not wonder why there's not more conversation given to the, the issue of slavery. Uh, in reading this, uh, a few questions came to my mind and I'm sure are coming to yours. Why doesn't Paul spend more of this letter outright condemning slavery as a whole? Why is he only appealing for Onesimus if there's potentially more slaves? How could Paul think so highly of Philemon? How could he commend his faith if Philemon was a slaveholder? And to be honest, in Philemon and in other places in the New Testament, it can be hard to find pretty satisfactory answers. Um, but there's three things that I think are, are pretty helpful as we, as we consider this. The first is that slavery back then really was as bad as it has ever been. Uh, we sometimes hear in a, in a defense of the New Testament that slavery back then was a little bit nicer, that conditions were a bit better, that slavery was a really broad term that fit a whole bunch of things. But slavery back then really was as bad as it has ever been. Slaves in those days would be regarded as dead people walking. They were bodies, but not somebodies. People were regularly captured as spoils of war. They quickly had their ethnicity, their identity, and their rights erased. They were subject to all manner of abuses and would often die without tasting freedom. A slaveholder who would treat a slave any better than that would be an anomaly rather than the norm. And so it's a, a genuine question of, of how can Paul commend Philemon's faith? By the way Paul does that, I think we'd be safe to assume that Philemon uh, treated slaves better than many others. But the fact remains that he owned slaves. The second thing that I think is helpful for us in answering that question of why does Paul not give more of the letters condemning slavery as a whole is that really Paul had no sway in general society on this. Uh, this letter is written to uh, the people in Philemon's household and the church that meets there. In Colossae as a whole, nobody would have listened to Paul, really. And so Paul is addressing uh, those that he can actually have an impact on. That if he was to condemn slavery as a whole, which I'm sure uh, he, he did condemn it, then that message would have fallen on mostly deaf ears. Uh, he's addressing those he can actually change. And thirdly, is that in, in addressing Philemon here, Paul is fundamentally undermining the whole idea of slavery. 
And he does it in a pretty tactful and pretty helpful way. Uh, So across many verses, so in verse 8 and 9, Paul appeals to his authority that he would have in Christ, but then appeals to love. In verse 14 and 15, uh, he kind of uh, gives a bit of flattery to Philemon. In verse 21, he says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. And then there's some more flattery. In a pretty tactful way, Paul is giving Philemon no choice but to free Onesimus. There is no doubt that Paul wanted Onesimus to be free, that he thought it was right to be free. That's why verse 8, it calls it required. And so Paul undermined slavery, and he called Philemon to free Onesimus. And back to verse 16 to see how radical this freedom would be. No longer as a slave, but as a brother. When we consider the state of slavery in those days, the difference between being a slave and a brother couldn't be starker. A brother was viewed as an actual human, a human who deserved love and respect and honor. A brother was an equal. And that closing of verse 16, both in the flesh and in the Lord, is really significant. Because there is a, there's a kind of an abstract spiritual reality that people could consent to, that in Christ Jesus all are one. That there is now no distinction. That Onesimus is a Christian and so he is a brother in Christ. But it's possible to to kind of assent intellectually to that idea and then to not have any change come about in your life. So we often uh, love to hear and think about our brothers and sisters in Christ all across the world. Uh, We hear uh, wonderful stories of what God is doing there. And we also hear really brutal stories of how our brothers and sisters are persecuted and killed for their faith. But if we were to really consider these people our actual family, our brothers and sisters, I expect that our hearts would break a whole lot more than they do. That those stories of people being killed for being a Christian would never be able to leave us. That they would always be on our hearts. Paul is calling Philemon, to accept this spiritual reality that they are united as brothers in Christ and he is calling him to live like that is true, to free Onesimus, to regard him as an equal. I know as we, as we go through this, uh, we're seeing that the burden here seems to be uh, on Philemon to forgive Onesimus. And when we consider the whole story, that seems a little outrageous when Onesimus was the one who was the slave. I am sure that that in Paul's time with Onesimus, there were a lot of hard conversations about forgiving Philemon. We just don't have a letter to Onesimus because Onesimus was physically with Paul. Paul will not have put all the blame here on Onesimus, definitely not. Uh, We just don't have a letter uh, that goes on that. 
And the third question we have of how is any of this possible really gets us to the heart of the letter. How, how could somebody go from owning this person as a slave to then treating them as a brother? How could somebody who was a slave go from being a slave to forgiving and being an equal with his former slave holder? The answer is to look at the death and resurrection of Jesus and to copy that. We said at the start, it is that reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus that changes absolutely everything. But you'll see in this letter, this is the only of Paul's letters where he doesn't kind of expound on what the death and resurrection of Jesus means. In all the other letters, it's really clear he corrects their their doctrine where they've swayed away from that. Uh, He reminds them of the truth of that that they are to hold on to. But here he doesn't. But if you look closely at verse 18, Paul doesn't need to shout about it. He lives it out. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. That is the exact same as what has happened to our sins at the cross. Except it is not Jesus taking the punishment for sins we did to others. Yes, he does take that. But it is also the sin that we did to him. That that debt of sin that we owe is paid in full by the one we owe it to. That all of us from birth have a debt of sin that we could never repay. Onesimus would never have been able to undo the damage that he had done. In fleeing, the right thing to happen would have been that he would have gone back and been killed. He was expendable. Even a life of service wouldn't have been enough. Philemon could have just gone and sourced another slave. There were plenty. He had a debt he could never repay. And Paul takes it. Whether you feel that sinful or not, we come with a debt that we can never pay. That we will never be good enough holy enough, perfect enough. But it is Jesus Christ who has taken the punishment for our sins and paid our debt. And not paid our debt in a way that we see normally with debts and that sort of thing. I expect I'll pay about 10% of my student loan over my lifetime. And the, the bills will kind of keep going. And if you have a a mortgage, it'll be 25 or 30 years or whatever, and you'll keep paying it back. Jesus has paid for our debt of sin in full. The debt is gone. It is fully wiped away. He has guaranteed it. And so the slate is wiped clean. The slate between Philemon and Onesimus is wiped clean. The slate between us and God is wiped clean. 
But there is more to this story than just a clean slate. If you like, a clean slate kind of puts you on neutral ground. But Paul doesn't call Philemon to leave Onesimus on neutral ground. He calls him to make him a beloved brother. To go from enemies to beloved friends. For us as followers of Jesus, to have gone from enemies to children of God. Because we have been fully reconciled to him. And that's why the resurrection is so significant. Because of the resurrection, we become a new creation. Anyone in Christ is a new creation. And their whole identity, and we thought about this with the glory of Christ, is wrapped up in Jesus. That their whole life, our whole life, is for the glory of Jesus. And if that is true then our old identity as enemies or as people on neutral ground is completely gone because we really have been brought into a new family as new creation. Uh, Let's read some verses from 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, I'll just read them to you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The old has truly gone, and the new has come, because Jesus rose from the dead. And so we who were crucified with Christ will also rise with him to stand as new creation. And it sounds so scandalous to think of a former slaveholder being equal brothers with his former slave, of standing together and singing of the glory of Jesus. But the message and the reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus is so strong that there is no bond that it cannot bring together. And so as Philemon knew this truth, the way he was to apply it was to free Onesimus and treat him as a dearly beloved brother. And for us, if we accept this truth of how the death and resurrection of Jesus changes things, um, then I want us to finish with three ways uh, in which that plays out in our lives, of how we uh, ought to go and apply that. The first is to know and to act as though all people need the gospel. We see from Philemon and Onesimus that there is none too sinful to need to hear the gospel. There are none too sinful that God cannot heal them. 
There are none too sinful that God does not want them to come to know him. That as we look around the world about us, we often think that, uh, that there are some people out there who are more likely to become a Christian because they seem like pretty decent people. Uh, they seem to not be into all the things that Christians are against. But every single person who is not in Christ is exactly the same distance away from knowing Jesus. And that distance is bridged by that gospel message that goes far further than we could ever imagine. The flip side reality too is that there are none who are more deserving of Jesus. There are none too good for him. If we really believe this, you might want to picture it like a couple of doors. If we believe that there are none too sinful uh, to hear the gospel, then coming into church or us going to them will be the worst of the worst. People who have done unspeakable crimes. People that the world looks at and discards. And then if they see people going through that door, then these apparent good people might look and think, that's not for me. I'm far too good to be associated with them. I don't need that. But the truth is that all people come to the cross equal. Sinners in need of mercy. The second thing is that this unity that is on offer is a fantastic apologetic to the world. We know and we feel that we live in a divided world. The lines between people on different uh, political spectrums seem so clear. So often, um, we are really worried about um, liking or being seen to like people who are quite different from us. We create these categories of acceptable people, acceptable beliefs. And the world is divided. And the world doesn't really have an answer for how to heal all these divisions. There is nothing earthly that we could base full unity on. Because at some level, any of that unity will break down. But in this church, we see a diverse yet fully united people united into the death and resurrection of Jesus. And across the world, as we think about our brothers and sisters, we see uh, a family that for no other reason could possibly come together. But because Jesus has brought them together. And the final one is that if we hear this call to live out this unity to spread this gospel of reconciliation to the whole world. As we live our whole lives, hopefully for the sake of Christ, then we are going to need to keep coming back to the cross. To be refreshed of the reality that we live in. To not lose sight of that truth that we are reconciled to each other and to God. That when we think that what God is asking is just too much, that we are not good enough, that this task is not worthy 
would we keep coming back to the cross and the resurrection to be refreshed by that glorious reality? Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much that out of your love for us, you would reconcile us to yourself. That Jesus would pay for the debt that we never could. That though we have wronged you constantly, you give grace and forgiveness to us. Lord, we pray that, that through our unity, through our forgiveness for one another, uh, people who don't know you will come to wonder how could any of this be possible. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the words to share of the glorious reality we now live in. That we are new creations, the old has gone. That we are a family of dearly beloved brothers and sisters, united by Jesus Christ. Amen.